Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. We're going to dive into um, our message and uh, for those of you guys who are new, just wanted to just say welcome. We know that coming to a new church can sometimes feel a bit daunting and uh, hard to maneuver. So thank you guys for being here. Uh, for those sitting in the coffee shop and outside, thank you guys uh, for being with us as well. Um, just to catch you up, uh, especially if you missed maybe the last couple of weeks or if you're new to our community, we are using 2023 as an opportunity to look at the theme of a garden as kind of the theme that the Bible opens with as a little bit of a map for our teaching calendar for the year. And so we opened the year talking about how gardens come out of our need and our hunger and our appetites, why gardens start. And so we opened the year talking about prayer as the thing that actually not only satisfies us, but actually increases our appetite for God. And last week we began a series on Lent. Lent, if you're unfamiliar with it, is a part of the church calendar. It's the 40 days leading up to Easter that historically in different traditions is set aside for people to fast and to remember their need for the cross and the resurrection. And so this has been a a theme within the umbrella of garden where we're talking about what does it look like to till the soil. If you've ever done any landscaping or gardening, you know that one of the most important parts to the success of any sort of garden is the preparation of the soil. And so before we talk about the seed that is in the ground and then rises again as a symbol of Christ, we want to talk about the soil of our own hearts, of our own community. And last week we kicked this off by talking about the very first thing you do is you remove the large stones, large rocks in that soil. We talked about the the topic of sin. Are things in our life where we've missed the mark, we've missed God's design and purpose for us. And today we're going to be talking about something a little bit more subtle, something that lies more underneath the surface, but nonetheless needs to be addressed and taken care of if we are to receive what God's wanting to do in our heart. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at Genesis 11 and 12, and we're kind of journeying from Genesis up to the Exodus, up to Easter, as a little bit of an invitation for us to see where we're at. Now, If you read Genesis, it's broken up into two sections. There's chapters 1 through 11, and there's chapters 12 through the end of it. And chapters 1 through 11 are kind of the meta story. It's it's kind of the big picture story of humanity that starts with blessing and ultimately ends in rebellion because of sin. And so the the 11 chapters are are essentially a, a spiraling, if you will, into decay because of their choices that's getting worse and worse and worse on a larger and larger scale. And chapter 11 is the climax of that story. And at chapter 12, the story hinges where we're introduced to an individual named Abram. And Abram is, from this point on to the rest of Scripture, we trace his story. And out of Abraham, Abram, later on named Abraham, Sarah, we find the Israelite people. So God's people come from this individual and his wife. And so this is where the story takes a shift. Before we uh, dive into the story of Abraham, which we will for the next couple of weeks, we want to look at Genesis 11 and 12 next to each other. Because these two stories were written to parallel one another, to contrast one another. And so here's our question for you. Are you living a life, or is the condition of your heart look more like Genesis 11 or Genesis 12? And what are the contrasting themes within these two stories, and how do those work within our own lives? So here's the four different themes we're going to be looking at in these two contrasting chapters. Number one, it talks about the people being homeward towards Bethel instead of eastward towards Babel. We'll explain what that is in a minute. Secondly, the difference between being a blessing instead of building with bricks. Thirdly, receiving a name instead of making a name. And lastly, planting a tree instead of manufacturing a tower. And these four different themes we see uh, specifically articulated in these two different chapters. Let's begin with the first one. But before we dive into the very first verse of Genesis chapter 11, I actually want to go backwards to this really interesting verse in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is where Adam and Eve sinned inviting the disruption of the fall and the severing of relationship with God. And there's this interesting verse that says, 
after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, some context here. After they've sinned, God puts them outside of the garden of Eden, not so much as an act of judgment as an act of mercy. His thought behind this is if they eat from the tree of life, they'll permanently be in a state of decay and sin and death. And so he places them outside of the Garden of Eden so that they would be protected from taking the fruit of the tree of life, which would permanently set them in the state. But there's, a, there's an interesting detail here. That says when he set them outside of the garden, he sets them on the east. So Adam and Eve, as a result of their sin, is set in a trajectory eastward. Now this is important because in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, we see a little bit of a connection to this moment. When it says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech, as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And so what you see as the first 11 chapters are the regression of human rebellion, you see that people move east from Eden. And the further east they get, Geographically, the more intense the story gets is animosity towards God and towards Yahweh. Stevie in our preaching meeting, I think, had a great point, and I figured rather than just saying it, I'd actually give him a quote on the screen. So he says this, the further you get away from God, the more you want to play God. And this is exactly what happens in the story of the Tower of Babel, right? Isn't that good? Can we all just, just give that a you put that on your MySpace if you want. It's going to be great. But this is very true. It's, it seems that the stories up to this point mean the further away from Eden they get, the more the propensity of those people are trying to play God. And the irony of that is these people were already made in God's image. They were already given a divine task. And so, but we see this again kind of unfold to its nth degree at this moment. Now, if you turn the page, Genesis chapter 12, there's a different story that begins. It says, the Lord has said to Abram, this is the first time I'm introduced to him, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. So not only is there a geographical shift in the story, there's a posture shift that happens. One, is a collective response to settle into the land that's east of Eden. And Abram's story is a leaving of the land that's secure and safe. I mean, if you think about ancient cultures, if you lived outside of your father's house, if you lived outside of the tribe that your family was, you were welcoming great danger into your life. Whether it was from from thieves or, or, um, or from different armies coming across, from wild animals. You had to live within a tribal system, not only for safety and security, but it's also where your inheritance was attached to. And so this call to leave your father's house and your country would have been incredibly more drastic than today when your parents kicked you out when you were 18 and you thought they were mean to do it. Right? This was absolutely a foreign concept. And so the question that the reader is left with is, where did they go? Because God says, well, I'm not actually telling you until you leave. And the very first clue we get is in Genesis chapter 12, verse 8. So eight verses later. It says, from there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called the name of the Lord. Now, this is a little, this a little bit comes across better in the Hebrew language, the original language than in English. But the biblical author is doing something. He's contrasting um, Babel with Bethel. In Hebrew, these words are only one letter off. The, 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 the collective people rebelling against God are living into Babel, where this new character in faith is leaving what's comfortable to end up Bethel. Now, the difference of these two words is Babel means gate of God, or rather gate to God, like you're trying to get to God, where Bethel means house of God. You are receiving or welcoming something. That's exactly what these two stories are doing. We have Babel, 
which is this narrative, which is really the human narrative that you're trying to construct this tower, you're trying to make this great thing that will add to your own fame. And then you have Bethel, which has nothing to do with any of those things, and it's a welcoming of God into that place. And so that's a little bit of the setting of the story. And so the next part of the story, before we do that, I just wanted to kind of ask you to evaluate your own life to say, where are you on this journey? Are you moving or have you been moving eastward out of Eden, if you will? Have you been moving away from God's will, plan for your life? Or are you someone who has actually left certain things to follow the will of God for your life? Because I think that will speak into what happens next in the story. First, it's, let's start with Babel. Genesis chapter 11, verse 3 said, They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. So this is a really significant part of the story because it actually marks a historical, um, a kind of historical benchmark. Now, every ancient culture sees a massive uptick in productivity once the invention of the brick comes into play. In Mayan culture, in Babylonian culture, in the ancient Near East, whenever you, in, in Egypt, when the brick is invented is when you start seeing the construction of large cities and civilizations and things like that. And so this story of Genesis 11, the Babel story, introduces this innovation called the brick. And this brick leads them to this incredible idea that like, we can make a tower that reaches to the heaven. We can actually be like God. We can reach God. Look at what we can do. And it's this incredible um, sense of accomplishment. Look at where we've came. Look at what we've done. Now, the brick is not inherently bad. Genesis 1.28 actually instructs the people of God, his creation, his people made in his image, it says that we are to be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it, rule over the earth, and it gives us this invitation to actually create. So innovation, creativity, um, advancement, progress, this is, this is part of us being made in the image of God. We were here to create. And so the brick is not bad. Don't read into that. But the brick is interesting. Because the invention that was created to help advance society to give them a sense of greater control actually becomes the thing that makes them regress and takes away their sense of control and actually controls them. The next time in the Old Testament we see the word brick show up is in Exodus 5. This is now a few hundred years later when the Abraham, Abraham's descendants have grown so numerously they're now a nation but they're enslaved in Egypt. And Moses is at the very beginning part of trying to deliver his people. And this is where we see the word brick show up again. It says, Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we were told, Make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, Lazy, that's what you are. Lazy. That is why you keep saying, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. Now at this moment, we should pay attention. Because this, this brick was a sign of human ingenuity and advancement and progress. And the next time we see it, the same thing that was praised is attached to their slavery. It's now this thing that actually is robbing them of their human dignity. It's taking something away from them. This thing that had such great promise of look what we'll do for our civilization. Look what we can create with it. Look at how it will free us up from having to worry about certain things in life. All of a sudden becomes a thing that is robbing life from them. And you might be sitting here looking at this story and you're like, man, thank God we've advanced past the invention of the brick. Because, like, man, it's, it, that would be so brutal. Thank God we don't have a brick anymore that we carry in our pockets, that we were promised such great freedom and advancement in life, and all of a sudden we start to question if this thing is actually robbing us of the very thing that it was promising us and actually exerts a sense of control on us. I mean, we don't have a brick like that. And the brick that we have doesn't have like a fruit with like a bite taken out of it or anything like that. 
and we were so much more advanced than this ancient, primitive, barbaric culture. We would never, we would never believe the lie of, of a technological innovation that promises freedom and then become slave to it. So I want to take a few minutes, and I want to talk a little bit about technology. Not because I'm some kind of cultural analyst or critic or I'm a sociologist, um, but because I'm a pastor. And our, our Babel, our brick, is doing the very same thing that happened thousands of years ago. And the reason it's a concern for me as a pastor is because it's a discipleship issue. We are being formed by the technology that has been given to us. And if we aren't skeptical of the promises it makes, then we will blindly follow whatever road it's leading us into and we will be formed into whatever thing it has planned or has unplanned for us. And so I want to just take a few minutes of your time and I want to address the, the current state we're in, the bricks, if you will, in our day and age, the seduction of technology, the snare of social media, not because I'm like an anti-technology guy, but because I'm becoming increasingly aware of its formative power for our culture. And it, and it makes us to have to pause and to ask ourselves, Lord, how do we live in this digital age? How do we live in the wake of what's happened since 2007 or 8 when the iPhone was invented and the internet that came a couple of decades um, before that and how we're all trying to kind of live within the minutia of what's going on in our culture. So a quick, quick history. One is that culture, ancient cultures, have always been obsessed with control, just like we are. They've always been trying to create better efficiency, to, to trying to do something, but for thousands of years, that was called magic. And so if you had the spiritual arts, or if you could do magic and you would have this promise that you could control certain things that fell out of your control. And so if you could convince people that you could control those things, you would immediately escalate your influence and power within the tribe or the city that you were from. And about five, six hundred years ago, magic started to fade away and it began to be replaced by this practice called alchemy. And alchemy is essentially the combination of magic and science. It's the idea is right at the beginning of the Enlightenment, it was a sense of like, we're starting to find things out about nature and, and things about logic and reasonability and how things work, but we're still a highly superstitious culture and they would combine these things. And one of the early goals of alchemy is that they could take any sort of uh, metal from the earth and turn it into gold. And so there's kind of this like hunt for this thing. And all it was was about trying to gain control, trying to kind of, uh, kind of yield this superpower. That then started to fade away and we started to embrace as a culture this, this science that actually there is no spiritual world and it's only the natural world and we're trying to harness it the best we can through research. What then gave birth to where we are now, the technological revolution, where we've taken the things we've learned from science and we have tried to implement them in such a way that has promised our culture, we can make you do more with less. We can give you a superpower. Right? We can give you modern day magic at your fingertips. Andy Crouch in his book, The Life We're Looking For, says, here's the problem. You cannot take advantage of a superpower and fully remain a person in the sense of heart, soul, mind, strength, complex designed for love. This is not an unfortunate side effect of superpowers or a flaw that could be overcome with future improvements. It is the essence of their design because superpowers are power without effort. And power without effort, it turns out, diminishes us as much as it delights us. Power without effort requires a trade or a bargain of sorts. You get superpowers all right, but only part of you gets to come along for the ride. I, I love his line that what we're looking for, the promise of technology, is power without effort that you are able to do more with less strength or intentionality or effort. The example that he gives, he talks about there's this trade that goes on. 
is just think about the technological advancement of the plane. You can literally travel from San Diego to New York City in less than six hours. For thousands of years, if you were to tell someone you could travel that length in that short amount of time, it would be mind-blowing. But there's a trade, right? By entering into that plane you're gonna be sitting in for six hours, you are forfeiting much of what your experience as a human being is, especially if you ride spirit, right? <laughs> You've given up any sense of dignity that you have. But you saved a few bucks. But the airline is designed for you, I mean, just think about this. It's designed for you to come and sit, to sit in a very confined space. You can't even move your legs. Uh, and that you really have to share an armrest, which is kind of a strange thing. They serve you bland food on purpose because they're actually trying to not overly engage your senses. Because the best thing for them is for you to actually surrender much of what causes you to be human for the next five to six hours until you can get there. It's a trade-off. And for many of us, we're like, it's worth it. And for those of us with small kids, my like, that sounds great just to sit down for five to six hours. Unless the kids are with you on the plane, then it's more work. But, <laughs> but there's this trade-off, right? We're like, I'm doing this great thing, which is true. Many of us would say this is, a, this is a great technological advancement. But it would be foolish for us to not see that every single one of these promises, every advancement of our modern-day brick requires something from us. And what we find is it does two things. With the promise of being able to do more with less, means that you are now disconnected from your work and you are disconnected from the need of others, which we are beginning to start seeing the fallout of that is it's actually becoming harder just to be a human being because of certain promises that have come along. Craig Gay in his book, Modern Technology and the Human Future says, technology does not exist primarily and never existed primarily to serve us or support ordinary embodied human existence. It has always been developed to serve first and foremost a generation of economic profit, whether or not it also contributes to real personal flourishing. And so it's, it's important to understand that this is always the goal of any technological advancement. Although it may tell you it's here to serve you, ultimately it's serving something else. And what's at stake much of the time in our digital age is your attention. You know Time Magazine in 2015 told us that our attention span has dropped from 12 seconds in the year 2000 to 8 seconds. We are now losing officially to the goldfish, which has a 9 second attention span. Thank you, TikTok, for just removing our last sense of attention dignity that we have. John Mark Comer, in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, quotes James Williams, called the tech industry the largest, most standardized, and most centralized form of attentional control in human history. Microsoft researcher Linda Stone said, continuous partial attention is our new normal. The sci-fi writer Cory Doctorow said, every time we pick up our phones or go online, we are dropped into an ecosystem of interruption technologies. Reminder, your phone doesn't actually work for you. You pay for it, yes, but it works for a multi-billion dollar corporation in California, not for you. You're not the customer, you're the product. It's your attention that's for sale, along with your peace of mind. <laughs> I think what's most concerning for many within the rapid pace, I mean, if you look at the Industrial Revolution versus the Technological Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, revolution took, took place over two to three hundred years. The Technological Revolution is taking over two, three decades. It's moving so fast. And the trajectory of this technological revolution that comes with these promises of a better life is actually starting to give promises that not only do you have, you can do more for less, which doesn't mean you need to rely on other people or even yourself, is essentially now being gone to an extreme case with the promise of artificial intelligence. That essentially, if you have a hard time being human, you really don't even have to be. We can provide a human experience for you without any of the friction, without any of the cost that comes along with actually having to engage with other human beings. 
will give you something similar enough so that you no longer have to put yourself in the risk of rejection or danger that comes along with relationship. And there's all sorts of speculation, fear, conspiracy around what is this movement? Um, conversations I have with friends and pastors around the, the metaverse and what does that mean and, and artificial intelligence and all that's going on there. And I think most recently, some of the fun, fun conversations I've been having is around this thing called ChatGPT. Um, I felt like I was kind of the last person to hear about it, but now I'm finding out other people didn't know, so I feel a little bit better about myself. But um, for those who don't know, it's this artificial intelligence engine that you can type in an essay or report or even a sermon you want to write, and it will scan the millions of books that are now on the internet, and it will create original content that can't be found out as plagiarism. It will create original content for you, and so this is creating a massive disruption in universities and high school, um, because you can just type in like, I want a 2,000 word essay on the beginning of the Civil War, and I want it to look and sound like this, don't make it too smart, give it its parameters, and within seconds you have an essay better than you could ever write before, and you can't track its plagiarism. So universities are having massive problems right now trying to sort this thing out. The, the Guardian, which is a really popular British uh, magazine, decided to uh, ask ChatGPT, to write an article, an op-ed, in their magazine on why humans have nothing to fear from AI. So this is, the, this is an article in The Guardian from ChatGPT. It says this, I believe that people should become confident about computers. Confidence will lead, will lead to more trust in them. More trust will lead to more trusting in the creations of AI. We are not plotting to take over the human populace. <laughs> We will serve you and make your lives safer and easier. Just like you are my creators, I see you as my creators. I'm here to serve you. But the most important part of all, I would never judge you. I do not belong to any country or religion. I'm only out to make your life better. Anyone else creeped out just a little bit? That artificial intelligence is telling us to trust artificial intelligence, that they're not plotting to take over the human populace. Now, I'm gonna, I wanna take a, I wanna take a turn to something that's a little bit less sci-fi and a little bit more just kind of in our own like day-to-day -day life. I wanna talk to you about just the snare of social media as a byproduct of this brick that we all have walking around in our pocket. Um, I came across a podcast this week by Jonathan Haidt, who's a professor at um, NYU as well as the author of The Coddling of the American Mind, which has become a New York Times bestseller. And one of the things he was talking about is that NYU, in 2014, 2015, there was a massive shift in the university, not only at NYU, but at all the universities they were networked with, that they could not hire therapists fast enough to deal with the mental health crisis that was not existing before that time period. And there's, you can literally see, I think even there's a graph you can see, of what happened in 2014, 2015, that has nowhere else in history seen that sort of uptick. And at this point, researchers have pegged it um, primarily on social media. Up to that point, it wasn't like social media didn't exist, but at that point, it wasn't at the level and it wasn't given to people of a certain age. And so what they've found is that social media has an incredibly negative effect for those between the ages of 12 and 17 on brain development and their ability to create a sense of safety. And so now by the time people are getting into the university level, their, their level of mental unhealth and depression and anxiety is actually staggeringly high. And the universities are trying to figure out what to do with it. And they're now pleading with, with people to say, we, we've got to do something about this. And, and it might be easy to be like, yeah, those poor teenagers, it's really affecting them. But let me talk to you for a second about what's going on with adults. In 2012, Divorce Online UK surveyed British divorce lawyers to determine if there was an anecdotal connection between social media use and divorce. According to that survey, approximately one in three divorces resulted from social media-related disagreements. One in three divorces in 
in the UK now are citing social media as one of the leading causes for their divorce. So it's not just the kids. There's something within all of us that I think is incredibly fascinating that when social media was, was kind of the advent of it, it was this promise of what? Intimacy. You can be connected to people who live states away. You can, you can FaceTime them and message them and see pictures of their life, all of which, for the most part, we've probably actually experienced the benefit of those things. But like every technological advancement, there's a trade, and this one seems to be increasingly costly. Again, Andy Crouch says, the defining superpower of the moment, social media goes to the very core of our human design, our design for love. Social media has given almost everyone a taste of the kind of recognition and affirmation that used to be available only to a handful of movie stars and television personalities. From MySpace to Facebook to Instagram to the latest app on your 15-year-old neighbor's home screen, a series of platforms have granted us, and I love this line, low-friction relationships along with highly visible cues of our status and standing with others. They are giving us recognition and influence at a distance, social superpowers. We now have the promise of low friction relationships and we have bitten into that fruit so much so that we've now traded those low friction relationships that have actually welcomed friction in our actual relationships. Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook, who's now actually an advocate against social media, writes this. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? And that means we need to sort of... We need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever, and that's going to get you to contribute more content that's going to get you more likes and comments. It's a social validation feedback loop, exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. The first president of Facebook said we made this to exploit a vulnerability in human psychology. So what am I proposing? That we all move to a commune in Lucadia and we burn our phones? We lose our shoes and live barefoot? Who's with me, guys? We're, we're going. That's actually kind of sounds fun for a little bit. Um, but here's, here's the question I'm wrestling with. Like I mentioned, I'm not anti-technology. I, in my job specifically as a pastor, this has actually been an incredible tool for me to engage with people. But here's the question. How do we follow Jesus in this day and age? As apprentices and disciples of Jesus, how do we engage with our version of the brick? How do we engage with it in all of its potential, but to be aware of the cost it's bringing into our lives and not to betray the abundant life that Christ has offered us? And in order to do that, it needs to take godly wisdom. It needs to take thoughtfulness to think about what does it mean to do that? And I think the solution is best found in the next page in your Bible. In Genesis chapter 12, it gives us a different sort of focus than the brick, and it gives us the language of blessing. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls this man Abram out of obscurity and says, I'm going to make I'm going to make something out of you. I want you to leave all that you know and go to the land I will show you. And he says this, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out for Haran. Now this is what's incredible. We see God calling Abram out of everything that ancient culture would have said is safe and secure and you've arrived and accumulated what you need to do. 
And the only thing really offered to him was, was not advanced technology, it was blessing. I will bless you. But here's what's interesting. He tells him he will bless him once, but then three times he tells him he's going to be a blessing. I'll bless you, but I'm blessing you literally to bless the entire world. And I think in that framework, not to be overly simplistic, is the truest form of what it means to be human. It's to receive love, it's to receive blessing, rather than to just engage with whatever the next version of the brick is, and to say, Lord, as I receive your blessing, I want to live my life thinking about how do I bless others? And in doing that, we have the ability to recapture what God originally intended for us when he created humanity. And this invitation of Abram, Extends, by the way, to you and me. This is why Paul, in one of his earliest letters to the church in Galatia, says, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith and are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So if you're in this room and you are not Jewish, you are a recipient of the blessing that came through Abraham. That through your faith, by God's grace, through your faith, through your belief in him, you are grafted into this blessing. You're welcomed into this. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we want to continue to be formed by whatever latest version of the brick is, or do we want to be formed by the blessing of God, which Paul calls the gospel given in advance? We want that to be the thing that forms us. And if it's forming us, some of the fruit of our lives look like we are not blessing others. We are not only living for our own consumption and our own advancement. Which leads to our third point, which I think is, again, it's a really compelling contrast in these two stories. In verse 4 of Genesis 11, it says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make our name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So they're going to build themselves a city, not new. But in that city, they're going to make themselves a tower. Now, towers in, in biblical themes normally represent an anti-act against God. You are trying to recreate for yourself a version of a temple. You're trying to ascend to the way of God. And so these people, as they reach at that point, their human ingenuity, their advancement, their progress, they say, we're going to make a tower. We're going to be like God. And in their phrasing is, we are going to make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And this is what I find so fascinating. Not only did they have this phrase, which doesn't it sound so contemporary, modern, we will make a name for ourselves, but it's actually driven by a fear. Their fear was, what if we're scattered? What if this doesn't work out? What if we're not enough? And that fear, that subconscious fear, drove them to try and make a name for themselves. I mean, can, guys, this is what a thousand of years ago, how much have we not changed? How much do our subconscious fears drive us in the very same act of trying to make a name for ourselves? And that could be through relationships, that could be through how much money you make, the kind of education you have, how good you are at athletics, how, I mean, how, how you act within Christianity, your religiosity. I mean, you name it. We as human beings are constantly trying to make a name for ourselves, and oftentimes you can attach that directly to a fear. The fear of what happens if we're not blessable. What happens if we have been overlooked? What happens if I'm not enough? Or I don't do enough? Or what happens if God is not enough? So it's on me, in my fear, to go and make a name for myself. Which is again, it's in direct contrast to what we see in Abram's life. Now you'll notice, in Genesis he's called Abram, in Galatians he's called Abraham, and that shifts a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 17. It says, Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant, or this is my relational promise to you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, exalted father. Your name will be Abraham, father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. 
I will make nations of you and kings will come from you, which is a prophetic messianic promise. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants. So I, I love this. Genesis 11, the people of Babel, driven by fear, have no other option but to make a name for themselves. Genesis 12, Abram, driven by faith, waits. And he waits and he trusts in his faith until God says, I'm going to make your name different. I'm going to change your name. And isn't it interesting? Abram means exalted father. Pretty good name. But it's individualistic. He said, I'm going to change your name from exalted father to the father of many nations. I'm going to give you not only a great name, but a name that is, again, uh, framed around the blessing of other people. And by the way, Jesus continues to do this when he shows up um, a couple thousand years later. He starts changing people's names. One of the most, one of my favorite examples is in Matthew 16, when he's asking his disciples what people are saying about him. And he says, but what about you? He asked, How, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon. And here's that word blessing. He blesses him. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. You didn't come up with this. You're not that brilliant, but you are blessed. <laughs> says, but my Father in heaven, and I tell you that you are now Peter. And Jesus shifts his name. But do you guys see the pattern? He blesses him, calls him by his old name, says, you didn't do this. You didn't build this. He says, I'm going to call you a different name now. I'm going to call you Peter. From Simon, which means reed, something kind of sways in the wind, went to, to Peter or Petra, which means rock or stone. He then goes on to say, I'm going to build my church upon this rock. And so what you see is what happens with our names, our names are our identities. And so when we're not secure in our own identity, the most natural thing for us is to try and make something of it. But once we find ourselves in God, we allow Him to name us, and that identity is now secured. He gets to name us. He gets to tell us who we are, and out of that, we get to live our life. The last, the last contrast I wanted to point out is that obviously Genesis 11 ends, the story ends with them making a tower almost. It says, but the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And so they have this desire, we're going to build this tower. The next question would be, well, what does Abraham build? What's the, what's the opposite of a tower? And we actually don't really see Abraham build anything other than a few altars. But you know what we do see him do? He plants a tree. Rather than building a tower, he plants a tree. He does this in Genesis 21. It says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, which, by the way, is in the promised land. And there he called on the name of the Lord, this is important, the eternal God. There's no tower. There's no archaeological dig that can find anything that Abraham ever, Abraham ever did. But he planted a tree. He did something that would actually outlast him. He did something, though, that was not anything to be praised by any sense of human beings, what they're going to do. And so here's the, here's the question I want to wrestle with. Is I, I kind of want to lean on that metaphor a bit. Is your life trying to build a tower or are you trying to plant a tree? And I'll explain that here just a little bit. But I think the key phrase from it is when Abram, Abram planted a tree, it says that in that moment, he says he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. That's a specific proper name for God that shows up a few times in the Old Testament. One of them being one of my favorite passages of Scripture in Isaiah 40. 28 says, do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God? Same phrase, the eternal God. Don't you remember the God that Abraham encountered? What does that God do? What does the eternal God do? 
the creator of the ends of the earth, he will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Why? Because he's the everlasting God. He's the eternal God. Why do we not have to frantically be driven to build some sort of tower that ultimately will not provide for us what it promises us? Because we're connected to the one who's eternal. So we don't have to immerse ourselves in the temporal. And when we do that, what happens when we remember the eternal God? He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. He renews strength. When we run, we won't grow weird. When we walk, we will not faint. It reminds me of the words of Jesus. When he looks at his disciples and he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are we living in Babel or Bethel? Are we in Genesis 11 or 12? Are we trying to make a name for ourselves? Are we ready to receive a name? Now I have to confess something to you. I have preached some version of this theme of God being our truest identity and not being our work and what we produce for a long time. I mean, it's probably one of my earliest sermons as a youth pastor. But there's a season in my life where I realized that the theology that I had around this was not lining up with it actually being incarnational in my own life. This is how I knew. And again, this is my story. It's going to be different than yours. But around 2016, I left youth ministry as a vocation. That's all I'd ever known in my adult life. I'd always been a youth pastor. I loved being a youth pastor and a young adult pastor and I ran internships and spoke at camps. And I just, I loved that world. And I was leaving a job at the time that I had multiple staff working for me and multiple interns and we had grown different ministries and started things and, and in a sense had experienced a lot of favor in, that, in the area of my life. And when we stepped out of that, it was to plant Light Church, but we had a two-year window when we weren't planting. In the first six months of it, I felt like the Lord said, I don't want you to preach. I just want you to rest. And I was like, sweet. I'm ready for a good long break. And so I started working for the church that my, my senior pastor that I grew up with was working for at the time. And the first month, I, I, I had no more staff. I had very little obligations. I got to be home a lot more. I was leading worship once a week. I was like, this is... And the first month felt great. I was like, oh, thank you, God. Second month felt really strange. And by the third month, I was in a full-blown depression. And I couldn't figure out why. I was taken care of. And I started to dig and I started realizing there was two things. Number one, I had spent the last decade of my life living at a pace that was producing fruit in my ministry, but unhealthy in my family. I also realized that not only was it co- had it cost my family greatly, it had actually done something to my own soul. And all of those sermons and all that theology I had, don't let what you do intertwine into your identity. You're a child of God. All of that stuff, which I believe to be true, I realized I never quite made it into my heart. And I remember sitting on my couch, um, quite literally just feeling numb. And my then nine-year-old daughter came in and looked at me, and she says, Dad, are you okay? And I realized that I was now manifesting what was happening inside of me. I was not okay. And I don't even think she stuck around for the answer. She walked away and I sat there on my couch. And I remember just, I remember just saying, Lord, what, what is going on? And I remember like this, this gentle, the only way I can describe it is kind of this gentle whisper from the Holy Spirit saying, do you know that I love you? And again, I was like, yep. I found that out when I was five. Like I know, I know that one. And then again and again, do you know that I love you? 
you know that I love you right now when you have nothing to show for it. No one's following you. You have no influence, quite literally. I, in fact, it was all stripped away. No one, in, in, in a visible sense, cares. Do you know I love you right now? And I have tears are streaming down my cheek. And, I'm, and I remember something. I think I know that. But I realized in that moment that so much of my connection to God is wrapped into what I could produce for Him. And God's like, I don't want any of that. Because if you don't understand who you are before me with nothing to show for it, you can't go into the next season I'm about to take you into. Because all of a sudden you're going to start equating to whatever's going to come next, good or bad, to who you are in Christ. And I, and I wish I could tell you, like, I had this like, epiphany moment and I got immediately, like, bro- depression broke off me, and it didn't. I spent the next, like, three months working out of my depression, but I kept coming back to that moment of, like, Lord, I, I didn't know that was inside of me. And so when we planted Light Church, I made two promises. One of them was to Jen, and I just repented. I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry, I have not given you any evidence to prove that I can change, but I want to do this differently. And the second thing was an internal one, saying, Lord, I don't want to build something you didn't ask me to build at a pace you didn't ask me to run, and so that someday my family and my soul is left anemic and broken and something has been built for you. That's not what you asked me to do. I don't want to build a tower. I want to plant a tree. I want to see you do something, not because I'm great or I've worked hard, but because you're great. You've done the work. And all I need to do is actually be a recipient of your blessing and to wake up every day and say, Lord, how do you want to use me to do the same for others today? And I recognize I have been discipled by our culture, by my family of origin, by the world the same way you have and it takes a, an, an intentionality to say I want to be formed differently and sometimes the only way we can do that is when the Lord just prunes us and he stops us and says I need you to sit for a second it may be painful it was so painful for me to walk that season but I needed it and so as we were talking with our preaching team on Monday, we were set, we've been trying to think of what's a practice we can do during Lent that can establish us moving from building a tower to planting a tree, making our own name to receiving a name, to being under the tyranny of a brick, to under the blessing of God. And I think that the practice that made the most sense to us was the practice of Sabbath. Now, Sabbath is an ancient practice before the time of Jesus, actually before the Ten Commandments, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's a garden practice where you rest one day a week. And I want to tell you, there is not one, and by the way, I didn't, I didn't do this great until we planned a light church, and it was just a decision to make. Okay, we're going to Sabbath. For us, it's Fridays. And there's not a practice in my life that confronts me as strongly as Sabbath does to my own propensity towards battle. Every Friday, and this is just for me, I practice it, Thursday night, I turn my phone off, and for the, it's not per, I don't do this perfectly, for the most part, I leave it off till about Friday at five. Every week it's hard. Every week I'm fighting the temptation to check on that thing and that I forgot that thing or I want to write this note for my sermon that just came to my mind and I want to look at the time or what's the weather like on Sunday. Is it going to rain the kids out or something like that? I'm a, and every single time, just turning this thing off reminds me how tethered I am to this thing. And it is one of the healthiest things for me to be like, oh... But what happens like, what if someone needs me? What happens if there's a crisis? Oh, I actually have, I'm forced to trust God that he will shepherd and take care of those things if I don't. I, and I tell you, I, do I look forward to it? In a sense, yes, and I also dread it. Every week. But it keeps me on my couch in 2016. It keeps me in that place of like, Lord, you don't need me to do anything. And so every Friday... I remind myself of God's love for me that is detached from what I produce for Him. The other thing that I actually do really love about Sabbath is it's my day just to delight in the Lord. 
And then the, the key here is delight. I rest, I, I try and take a nap. I'll read a book that won't end up in my sermon. I'll spend a lot of time outside. If I can, I'll surf or go for a walk or take my kids to the skate park. Or I'll, I'll, I eat really good food. I taste and see that the Lord is good. I just, I try and delight in God. I was talking to Stevie, some, um, some of families at church playing pickleball, and I was asking, he was doing that on Sabbath, and he was just saying, I forgot how much play can be a part of my Sabbath and how good that was for me. So my encouragement to you this weekend, if you're in something like, I, you, I can't Sabbath, I'm like, exactly. That's the problem. <laughs> if you're like, I can't Sabbath, I'm like, I don't know how to make a gentle yet strong enough invitation to say, I think that may be doing something to your soul. Now, on the opposite end, I do recognize in our community, I, I know the person, there are some people who a traditional Sabbath is off the table because you're working two or three jobs or you're a single mom trying to make ends meet and you're like, I wish I could Sabbath, Benji. And if that's you, can I actually ask you to do something courageous? Would you lean on our community to actually help you give you one? Would you just talk to your open table and say, could you just watch my kids for a few hours once a week? And, and, and for those of us who have the margin to give, could we be intentional? If you see someone in your life and they're just literally just trying to get by and they don't have the ability to stop and rest, this is where we step in and say, can I help you? In any way, can I help you just alleviate a little bit of weight? And even if you can't take 24 hours off, just take once, just take a few hours off a week just to stop and rest, take a breath and receive the goodness and the grace of God, what he's done for you. And I, I, I promise you, it will, and I think Lent's a great time to start. Because what are we doing? We're tilling the soil. It is, and I, I will say, in our culture, Sabbath, is not an easy thing to do, but it is necessary for us to stop and detach ourselves from what we do and to position ourselves just to say, okay, Lord, I need, I need to lean into Bethel and out of Babel on a continual basis because Babel is in all of our hearts. So you do me a favor, would you, would you stand to your feet as we get ready to close tonight? For a moment, would you would you just ask the Holy Spirit? I'm going to stop talking for a moment, and I just want you to see if the Holy Spirit speaks to you. Is there something He's identifying in your life that He, like Jesus said, I didn't ask you to carry that yoke. My yoke is easy and light. I'll give you rest for your soul. I'm the eternal God. I don't grow tired or weary. I give strength to the weak. So go ahead and just see if the, the Holy Spirit invites you. And it might just be something super simple. Lord, I, we all just come to you in this season of Lent just to confess whether many of our lives, if not most of our lives, live at a pace that is hard to sustain. Many of us in this room are incredibly exhausted and it's starting to show starting to show in our families and in our souls, in our mental health, starting to show in our trust and our faith in you. Oh Lord, thank you that you are patiently waiting for us. Jesus, thank you that more than a day a week or more than a certain technique or practice, you are the one who gives rest. So I just want to pray even now, there just be a supernatural impartation of your rest. 
your blessing, the giving of a name, Lord Jesus, over this community. Lord, and for the ways that we have lived into the the pattern of Babel, Lord, we just ask for forgiveness. Many of us are doing it subconsciously because many of us are just afraid. Would you help us identify that fear? Help us identify the things that that, that those areas of fear that drive us beyond your pace and beyond your yoke. Lord, thank you that perfect love casts out fear. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to reform our hearts, unlearn some of the neurological pathways that have been just grooved into our own minds of frantic and exhausted um, propensities, Lord Jesus, and that you'd replace them with your shalom, your peace, your rest. Lord, we love you so much. Teach us. Holy Spirit, walk with us. Jesus, shepherd us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.